and welcome to the Women's Edition, where women share their stories, experiences and challenges. I'm Carla and each week I share conversations with women who inform and inspire. We hear the lessons they've learned, their thoughts on social issues and what we can all learn from women's lived experiences. So here we are with a brand new series. There are so many new and exciting developments this series. There's a new logo illustrated by the very talented Rosie Johnson, who was a guest on series one. Thank you to Rosie for doing such a wonderful job. Secondly, there's a new introduction. And we also have a new topic for this series, adventure. I'm talking to contemporary female adventurers, and there are so many inspiring guests this series. I really can't wait for you to hear them all. So without further ado, I would like to introduce my first guest. She's the first woman I thought of for this series of contemporary female adventurers, and I'm so happy she said yes. Ali Dunnington is a hot air balloon pilot who holds the women's world record for flying a hot air balloon in the most countries around the world. And she's also the UK's first female private pilot license examiner. These are huge achievements. If you don't know much about aviation or ballooning, there really aren't that many female hot air balloon pilots, let alone ones who have flown in so many countries around the world that they've broken the world record. Ali has flown in 103 countries so far and she's on a mission to add so many more. She was born in Germany and travelled and worked in Asia as a tour manager for 20 years. She speaks several languages and has a master's degree in Asian studies and a PhD in tourism and anthropology. She's also a trained nurse. Ali is a commercial balloon pilot and now lives in Bristol in the UK. As a qualified instructor, she trains students and runs a ballooning business, Gone with the Wind, with her husband Phil. Ali is an active member of the British Women Pilots Association. She's so enthusiastic about promoting ballooning to women that she started the Women's Balloon Event, which has now become a key event in the annual ballooning calendar in the UK. Here is hot air balloon pilot, Ali Dunnington. So, Ali, what did you do before you became a hot air balloon pilot? Right. Well, um, I've had quite an interesting career. So my first uh, degree actually was in Chinese, Japanese and empirical cultural sciences. <laughs> uh, so I did an MA in there and then um, actually tried to find a job in China, in Asia, got tricked into becoming a tour guide then, which became my kind of main profession for nearly 20 years, taking tourists uh, all over Asia in the end, uh, including Laos and Cambodia, Indonesia, also started to bite here in the UK, actually. I did Scotland and uh, Cornwall hiking tours. Uh, but then I also trained as a nurse. <laughs> I thought I need a job for life. And I was always interested in medicine. If I hadn't if I hadn't fallen in love with languages, I might have wanted to become a doctor in Africa and help everybody. <laughs> mm. um, and then, yeah, it links into one of your next questions, probably. Um, suddenly life changed again. And uh, yeah, my next love story as a job was ballooning. Wow. And how were you introduced to hot air ballooning? Yes, so how was I introduced into hot air ballooning? It's a funny story as I was tour guiding in Burma in 2002 and uh, I suddenly lost my voice. I couldn't talk anymore. So I had to let my group go off with my local guide to see all the beautiful temples of Pagan. Um, And I rested by a swimming pool where at that time in the morning there was only one other person. That person dared to check me up in my bikini. (laughs) Turned out he was the pilot uh, of hot air balloons 
And at that time in Burma, there were only two small balloons carrying four or eight passengers in total. And I had three of my guests already having booked a balloon flight, but I had no idea. I wasn't interested in aviation whatsoever. I had to travel a lot on, on fixed airplanes, but I've never been up in a balloon. Um, so there was my chance at least to, to get a free invite to join my three paying guests on that uh, afternoon balloon ride. And it was the most incredible experience in my life that I had so far. We drifted over these 2000 temples into the setting sun on landing. All the village kids ran up to us. Uh, Phil, my now husband, filled me up with champagne. And that was that. <laughs> and we always joke, did I fall first in love with him or with a hot air balloon? Um, Ali said, <laughs> That's a brilliant story. <laughs> yes, it is. We also joke that you only fell in love with me because I couldn't talk. Little did the man know. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I know. It's, it's hilarious. So, yeah. So can you talk to us a little bit about ballooning? Because I can imagine there's lots of listeners who actually don't know much about it. Like, What happens on a balloon flight and what's your role as pilot? So, yes, what happens on a balloon flight? I mean... The role of a pilot, obviously, is to conduct the flight, to give passengers a good safety briefing. So uh, I'm, I'm definitely, obviously, responsible to bring everybody safely on the ground and not to take uh, any any uh, any risks, really. So um, you have quite an important role there, uh, looking after your passengers, whether they're paying guests or just your friends, or people, and you are responsible uh, for their safety. Um, so. Yeah, what happens on a balloon flight, we, we we get people into the basket and then we give them a, a good safety briefing on, on where to hold on, what to do, what not to do during the flight, where to touch, uh, how to land, your landing position. And then once up in the air, you're also a bit of a tour guide. Um, when we fly here over Bristol, of course, people don't always live in this city, so they want to hear a bit what's there and what can we see. So... And especially in places like uh, Burma, Pagan, we really had to be tour guides and explain about the temple. So it's kind of both. You're piloting, but also tour guiding. And I think that's where also ballooning is so special compared to other um, aviation forms because we're not in a separate enclosed cockpit. We are right in the middle there with our passengers and you get a lot of distraction from passengers asking questions, which is great. Um, but a balloon never flies on its own. You as the pilot need to constantly monitor the speed, direction, descending, ascent, weather changes. So it's a very intense hour whilst you're doing that flight. Um, and uh, But it's it's absolutely wonderful. And if you land and everybody's happy, it's, uh, it's an amazing feeling. And can you tell me what's the most memorable flight you've ever done and where was it? Well, again, looking through my logbook, it's really, really hard to pick out the most exciting ones. But uh, possibly, let me start maybe with Mongolia. That was one of my big dreams uh, after a summer pilot to go back to that beautiful country because I've lived there one winter in 93. I spent a year in Ulaanbaatar when the country and the city were still so poor. Um, but I then organized the first um, balloon rally through Mongolia in 2010 
and it was just stunning. It's a beautiful country with absolute diverse landscape, and you can just imagine drifting over the state. You saw the mountains and the wild horses and the camels. That was lovely. Um, I also did, if you ask, really most memorable flights. I have to mention a gas balloon flight that was a total night flight taking off from uh, Stuttgart in Germany and then going over the Black Forest and the Vogis Mountains in France and landing after 12 hours lunchtime the next day in France. That was also absolutely uh, incredible. And another country that Phil and I had worked really, really hard for years and years, and that cost us a fortune because in the end, to get there, we bought an old vintage aeroplane, a BJ-18. And our dream and target was Cuba. We had been there privately uh, already in 2007, uh, and we really wanted to uh, try and bring a balloon into the country. But you can imagine it's a very bureaucratic, very closed country. You can't just drive there. You can't put a balloon on a ship. You can't go from the US. So hugely complicated. And this is why we needed the private airplane and pilots to fly the airplane. Uh, but in the end, in uh, 2018, we finally succeeded to bring the balloon there, had the permissions, and we've done some amazing high flights over Vinales, these limestone hills. So I could probably go on for a long time, but another country that's obviously totally on my heart is Burma, which is sadly in such despair right now. It is so, so sad. But I had the most stunning flights at the coast uh, near Napali Beach, uh, over the jungle, and then landing near the beaches. Uh, or over Pagan, the 2000 temples there. It is a beautiful, beautiful country. Incredible. You've flown so many countries. <laughs> <laughs> How different. I mean, that's the trouble. And some flights, you know, when you ask most memorable, some flights can be really short. Like we did a hop down a runway in Greenway, Greenland, sorry. And that was only a five minutes flight. But again, just trying to get there, trying to find the weather, try to get permissions and then cruising down that strip towards the icebergs and the yeah. Arctic Sea. That was quite <laughs> adrenaline as well. <laughs> or trying to fly in Andorra, which is a tiny country, totally built up. There's hardly a green field left. Uh, that was a big challenge. I only did it in a hopper because anything bigger, you would not be able to fly. So, yeah, countries depend on their challenges, really. <laughs> yeah. And what's it like flying in different conditions, like flying over mountains or... Have you flown in desert? Yes, sure, yeah. Um, Namibia and uh, Kenya and, yeah, various uh, deserts. I love deserts. Um, desert flying is stunning because in the mornings, for example, you have the contours and the sunlight and the shade, and the, it's just magical, really. Uh, it's quite uh, uh, spectacular, really. But likewise, the Alps, for example, in the winter, I have to say that Alps are more stunning in the winter when they're all snow covered and you go right over the tops there uh, and you have the whole Alpine panorama in front of you. But yes, you need to prepare for different situations. I mean, high altitude winter flying takes a complete different preparation than flying in a hot desert country. So you need to make your load calculations, uh, choose the right equipment, the right clothing. Uh, so yes, it's different, and uh, but it will be part of everybody's training. Um, uh, when you do your basic balloon training, you will also learn how to cope with these different situations. Do you feel quite prepared? Yeah, I mean, as I say, every flight you have to prepare something, whether it's here in the UK or um, going over 
to, to, to Snow Mountain's um, preparation and we can touch that topic later on is, is one of the big parts in ballooning. That's amazing. And you hold the female world record of having flown a hot air balloon in 103 countries. Is it still 103? Yes, sadly yeah. it is because, of course, through lockdown, uh, I haven't been able to pursue uh, tracing more countries and traveling. So I'm quite confined to Bristol where I live. Um, yes, so that's true. And the idea came from Phil. Um, so Phil holds the overall world record. But he's flown now, let me think, I think 127 countries. Um, and he started, obviously, uh, many, many years ago. He was uh, actually running as a syndicate, the British Airways balloon. And every time BA started a new route, they would send the team and that balloon to those countries, like Pakistan and oh, all over the world. So he was lucky that after sort of 10, 15 years, he looked through his logbook and thought, gosh, that's a lot of exotic countries. And so the idea came about. And there's about four of us in that race. Um, there's one guy, uh, Chris Davis, who's chasing Phil by 10 countries, I think. Um, but after him, I think I've overtaken the second one, Paul Spellwood, um, by two countries now. So it's a little race uh, between us. Um, but uh, it's absolutely fascinating to try and fly in as many countries as you can. Gosh, and you really chased him, haven't you? Because you haven't been flying as long as him, have you? No, that is absolutely true. So Phil has had his license since 72 or something. I've had my PPL since 2005. So I'm catching up rapidly. Two years ago, um, actually, I, I knocked down 10 countries in one year. That was that was a highlight. Oh. Um and yeah it's not easier because uh, obviously the easy countries get less and less <laughs> and the more difficult countries get more and more <laughs> but there's over there's nearly 200 countries in the world probably 40 you would not be able to fly a balloon those are little islands in the pacific um but i reckon i still got 20 quite doable countries ahead of me uh so yes i've got quite a long list what I still want to do if I can. Okay, okay. And where else are you longing to fly? So if you could fly anywhere without the politics or the restricted airspace getting in the way, where would that be? So last year, my big, big hope, and we had the flights booked and the balloon ready, uh, and I had worked a year on getting permissions and even an exemption from the president, was Malta. <laughs> small island of Malta is nearly my last country in Europe, uh, apart from the Vatican and Monaco. Um, but that sadly fell into COVID. And so was another expedition that we want to do around the stands. So Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Pakistan, etc. Um, so yeah, certainly, I would love to revive those ideas and uh, try and do these countries. Yeah, would you ever get in the Vatican? Is that possible? <laughs> well, sadly, I missed the chance when we had the German Pope, because I'm originally from Germany, so oh. <laughs> I missed the opportunity. Only Giovanni, Giovanni Aimo, uh, we believe, is the only person who's ever had permission to fly from the Vatican years and years and years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that would be hard. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And also, it's so small, isn't it? 
Of course. I mean, you could only do a fly out, the same as with Monaco. You could launch from the helipad and fly into France. You could not land back in that country, but that counts. So on the country counting list, it's either a landing or a takeoff and a flight of minimum five minutes. That's kind of the internal racing rules. And then I wanted to talk a little bit about women in aviation yes. because that's something you're really into. And let's Absolutely. talk about the women's balloon meet that you launched in 2010, I think. Could you tell us what it is and why you set that up? Yes, absolutely. It's definitely uh, in my heart to talk about uh, women in aviation uh, and especially in balloons uh, since I'm involved in there. So it all goes back, I would say, probably to um, the year 2015-16 when I finally had my uh, private license and I finally could take in that amazing Bristol Balloon Fiesta launching amongst 130 other balloons and I stood in the briefing tent and I sort of looked around and I thought where are all the girls here? <laughs> I felt quite lonely. I think there were maybe four other female pilots registered uh, at that time to fly at that fiesta and the rest was just guys and so that kept me ticking um, and wondering why is that um, and so it kind of clicked on that uh, and then I, we were in Burma and again you I hardly knew any commercial pilots never mind a few private ones um, so I thought something needs to be done and why don't we have a, a balloon event where the women have to fly. They, my rules were that she could, if she hasn't got a license yet, she could fly with a male pilot to, to train her to make it a bit easier. Uh, but the key thing was that I really wanted these girls or women to be on the burner and get their first hands-on experience. Because I still believe until you've done something really practically yourself and had the opportunity to a, go up in a balloon and maybe touch that burner, fear for these things you, you will not really get the click and get so much involved so I was then also becoming a member of the British Women's Pilots Association the BWPA which I highly recommend uh, they've done fantastic events um, and I combined the event as a joint experience that I wanted balloonists to experience fixed wing flying and the fixed wing flyers to learn a bit more about balloons so that event really has uh, been running uh, for the last 10 years certainly we couldn't host it last year but I'm hopeful maybe that by the autumn we can have a live women's balloon meet again and it'd be lovely to have you Carla to join us there oh that'd be amazing absolutely <laughs> that'd be incredible thank you welcome so you're the first ever UK female examiner and I can't believe this in 50 years of ballooning history in Britain I just think that's amazing do you think that if we got more women female examiners, do you think there might be more female pilots? Do you think it's like chicken and the egg? Or how do you think that would help? Yes, I, I definitely think so. I think really, uh, and I've seen a lot of uh, recent reports, as I uh, mentioned earlier, the DFT Department of Transport has done a big survey on the women in aviation, exactly that topic. It's not only balloons, obviously it covers um fixed-wing aviation, commercial aviation. Um, and the question really is, why are there not more female pilots and what can we do to increase the numbers? And I think a big part really is the lack of role models. If you don't see um, 
women doing this, you just think, you know, you can't do it. So creating more role models as commercial pilots, as pilots just like that, or as instructors or whatever. And we all learn different. And indeed, there have been so many studies. How, how do we learn? We just had an instructor seminar uh, the other day, and there was a good um, task on how we all learn. Um, and that might be sometimes quite different. So um, I think the number has now really gradually increased. And I'm so pleased to say that I think now in 2021, during the recent spinning online seminars that I uh, hold for um, trainee students, I had nearly a 50-50 share of uh, men and women joining as, as trainees. So that is incredible. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that is really, really lovely. And I think, I think women are getting a bit more uh, into the saddle in aviation because there has been quite a support now uh, also from the main aviation industry to push uh, and, and facilitate um, uh, sponsorship um, and and just to yeah create awareness also that it is it is an imbalance uh, in aviation. Oh, it totally is. Yeah, because when I looked at the the only official figures I could find, there were eleven female current commercial pilots to one hundred and seventy five male pilots. Yeah which is such a big it gap is. so yeah I, it, lack of representation but do you think there are any other reasons yeah why? I mean I have to I have to honestly say I felt that is also at least during my career I felt sometimes really quite prejudiced <laughs> I have to say it openly um when I had my commercial license I think I just didn't get the recognition that I also had my CPL and that I could fly commercially and uh I felt people just thought oh yeah you know Ellie is just flying her hop on privately. And, and it took me a long time, actually, to, to even get a job offered. And I see some of the younger guys click here and there. Um, so that did surprise me for a while. And even, like you say, with the examiner role, it took a long, long time. And there, again, is the tenacity. Sometimes um, I think a lot of people might give up because there's too many hurdles in the way and you think what am I doing this for so I think I've been also very very lucky that my husband has absolutely supported me in in, in my career steps and you know um, given me sometimes that extra push to say you know just just carry on or don't worry about that um, if you don't have that support also from your partner I think you might sometimes also find it even more hard um, and hopefully I think yeah, those those hurdles, hopefully, in the future, get less and less. And I think we do see a really great increase. There's a lot of uh, young female pilots now out training, and, and that's fantastic to see. So if you wanted to become a pilot, so say there's some women listening now, where would you begin? What's the process for becoming a hot air balloon pilot? Right, so yes, it's maybe sometimes not as easy for people if they're not near sort of a more balloony center like Bristol clearly is. Uh, uh, if you're more out in remoter parts of Wales, for example, it can be difficult. Um, but the best thing is to still look out who is the local balloon pilot or is there a local rights operator, commercial uh, operator, and then uh, get in touch with these guys. And like you've done, Carla, crewing can be a brilliant way to just see whether you uh, like this 
and uh, whether you're interested um, and whether that's something for you. And through crewing, you learn so much already about uh, how ballooning works. But um, other than that, obviously, we have the BBAC is the British Balloon and Airship Club. That is our general umbrella um, organization and uh, all our training now runs through the BBAC. Um, so you would become a member there and then you get all the information how to train and you get online material for that. Um, and yeah, so there's definitely ways, but we don't have a fixed flying school. There's no balloons don't normally fly from airfields. So it's a bit not so focused and visible for some people as, as learning fixed wing. Okay, but quite a welcoming community if you did decide to. Yes, absolutely. And again, I mean, if you offer to start as crew, people will love you. <laughs> We're always desperate to find crew who help and who can drive. The dilemma for young um, people now is that they must have this trailer license. Uh, and that's quite costly and it takes a course. And that's a big hurdle because, of course, we need to tow that trailer in most situations. Um, and what happens often is that a pilot would give you maybe even a free lesson if you can crew for a couple of flights. So people exchange, you know, crewing for getting a bit of hands-on training. And what qualities do you think you need to become a pilot? I think that's a brilliant question. Um, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I've thought of that quite a lot indeed. And because I'm also an instructor and uh, through what I've did recently in lockdown, I've uh, in teaching online sessions uh, for the written exams, I got to know only through Zoom mostly now, but over 50, 60 students who are all keen here to learn and train. And uh, sometimes when you do meet people, you kind of immediately think, yes, this person will be, wow, you know, <laughs> got it all. The minute you see uh, people acting, speaking, doing stuff. With others, you think, Mm, yeah, it might take a little bit longer, um, just for the fact that basically, basically, I think you've got to have really good organization skills because just to prepare a flight to get it all together, even for experienced pilots uh, after a while or on a daily basis, there is a lot to organize. Then also you need to be a tier lead, team leader as a pilot. Uh, because you are still responsible for everything. So you might have well-trained crew, but if they do something wrong in preparation or rigging, it still will be your responsibility. So you need to have an eye on everything, but you also need to give clear commands. You need to be able to give a clear briefing. So I think a little bit uh, outgoing personality will certainly be helpful. Um, you also need to be good at decision-making. Uh, you will need to make a lot of tough decisions in your piloting life, uh, when to land, whether to go on, etc. And it's no good just flying forever and running out of gas. <laughs> we discussed this during our last session, in fact. Um, you will at some point have to make decisions and then just stand by it and uh, work it out. Um, and of course, learning is very multitasking, so you need to do so many things at the same time which is why I always say women will be much better actually at learning than men, because we're very multitasking. <laughs> but likewise, my last points would be, I think you also need to have a tiny bit of patience, never just put it through and think, I want to go flying, but actually look, the weather's rubbish. You shouldn't better. Um, 
but also a little bit of tenacity, you know, because it will take you a lot of frustration to go through your training and to become a pilot. So, you know, keep going. Don't lose sight of your goal, I think is also really important. Um, yeah, so that's couple of the points I think will be helpful if you've got those <laughs> yeah because I've been asked a lot about becoming a pilot at balloon meets and I've always always said no because I have no navigation skills whatsoever <laughs> um <laughs> I don't know left from right and um, what would you say what would you say to someone like me or if there's women out there who are listening who are like oh no I just don't think I'd be very good at it what what would you say to them well, I think that's actually a brilliant point, Carla, that you mentioned that. And that's one of the points that I also forgot to mention about why sometimes women don't move up the career ladder. Because I think in general, women are much more self-critical. We think, oh, no, I'm not good enough at that. And, oh, no, maybe I can't do that really so well. We have a much higher expectation level of ourselves than some of the guys. So I've seen so many guys also struggling with metrology and some of these skills like navigation. They're not better than us, but the way we see ourselves is the problem and that needs to be changed. And I think we can all learn that stuff. I'm terrible at mathematics. So again, navigation exam was one of the most difficult ones for me, for my brain, because I'm not good at calculating conversion rates and this and this. I'm good at general navigation, but your navigation exam, when when it comes to the written exams, has a lot of mathematics in it, and that was my hurdle. But I think the point there is we have a lot of really, really good instructors out there, so you just need to find the right teacher, and that brings me back again to, you know, if you don't click with one pilot or one instructor, try another one, because we all, we have all different personalities, we teach different, uh, and you just need to find the right person to teach you with patience the skills where you think you're not so confident. But I think, really, everybody can learn everything. You just need to try. <laughs> so you will do it, all right? <laughs> well, you've certainly made me rethink. <laughs> Absolutely. No, you definitely should go for it. Uh, because I think every skill can be learned. If you're if you want to do something, you can overcome. These are small hurdles. Navigation is only a fifth of the rest of the sort of skills or exam papers that you need to, to know. And once you've got your uh, license, you know, we have so many electronic uh, help tools that, that help us now with our navigation that actually uh, it, it, it's, it's, and it can become fun, you know. Uh, so I think, yeah, go for it. Never, never think you can't do something. It's uh, it's worth giving it a try and just find the right teacher. That's really important. That's such good <laughs> advice. And so, what does the future hold now that re- restrictions are starting to lift in the UK? Which country are you off to next? <laughs> well, which country are off to next? Well, part of me in my heart, of course, I, I would love to visit my parents again, who are in Germany, and I haven't seen them for a year now. So whilst Germany certainly wouldn't be a new ballooning country, uh, I think I, I I would love to see my family again. Um, but on, on a new country list, of course, Malta, I definitely would love to resurrect um, the Malta trip. Um, and then, yeah possibly the stance at some stage for Africa. We also had plans to do 
uh, Botswana and Mozambique. Again, Mozambique looks terrible at the moment. It's um, very sad. So, but we have to see with, with the restrictions and what's possible. So we're not making too closely knit plans. Um, but to your question, what does the future hold? I think um, ballooning will come back in full swing here, frankly. I think um, people have been holding back and not doing things for so long. Um, we've seen really the bookings for most of the commercial operators going quite well. Um, some people are still obviously a bit uh, worried, um, but I think by the summer, hopefully, if things move the right way, I think most companies and pilots commercially uh, will be very busy with passenger rides. But likewise, even the students, and that was why I was holding these online um, tutoring lessons, is um, we've hopefully brought people back on being keen and, and trying to train and get their licenses. So I just hope for a good summer with good ballooning weather and we get all these people back up in the air. Certainly people are keen and uh, I, I, I hope for a good future for ballooning. Oh, thank you so much, Ali. That was such a good chat. Absolutely, Carla, to you too. Fantastic question. What an extraordinary woman. Thanks so much to Ali for coming on the podcast. I can't wait to see how many more countries she adds to her world record list. I hope hearing Ali talk has given you some food for thought about women in aviation. It's women like Ali who are at the forefront of pushing the envelope when it comes to flying women. And I'm really excited to see what the future holds for women in aviation. Maybe you've always wanted to give it a go. Or maybe next year, if you can, go to your local balloon meet. Because as Ali says, they're always looking for crew. I hope you'll join me for the next few weeks as we hear from many more contemporary female adventurers. I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.